I am here with David Miliband. David, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having me. So uh, there's so much to talk about, and I'm re really happy to, to have you on the podcast. Let's just start with your background. How is it that you come to know many of the things you will obviously know as we, as we get rolling here? <laughs> what have you been up to? Well, you know that British people don't like talking about themselves, but here goes. I'm proud to be the president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee. It's a, an extraordinary American organization founded by Albert Einstein, a refugee in New York in the 1930s. He, he founded the International Rescue Committee to rescue Jews from Europe. Our first employee, Varian Fry, deployed to Marseille in 1940 and helped issue 2,000 passports, fake passports, mm. that helped Jews predominantly, but also intellectuals, escape from occupied France. People like Marc Chagall made it to the US because of the extraordinary heroism and ingenuity of Varian Fry. And today, the organization is an international humanitarian agency working in war zones and for internally displaced and for refugees around the world, and also the largest refugee resettlement agency in the United States, albeit there are very few refugees coming into the United States at the moment, and no doubt we'll talk about that. Right. I suppose one question that your listeners might be thinking is, well, how did a guy with an accent that's more British than Brooklyn get to be the president CEO of the International Rescue Committee? And I think that the backdrop is that I'd been in British politics and government for 25 years. In the 1990s, I was part of the project led by people like Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, who became prime minister. I was part of the project to turn the British Labour Party from an election losing machine. We'd lost four elections on the trot, 79, 83, 87, 92. People ask, must Labour lose? Question mark after the 1992 election. We were determined to rebuild a, a progressive party, a, a party of the centre-left that could win elections. And I'd then been fortunate enough to be involved both on the policy side in the run-up to 2001. And then in 2001, I was elected as a member of parliament for South Shields, which is an ex-shipbuilding, ex-mining constituency in the northeast of England. I was proud to be the member of parliament for, for 12 years until 2013. And in the 2000s, I was in government. I was minister for schools for three years. I was secretary of state for the environment, time when we legislated for the world's first emissions reduction requirements for 40, 50 years hence, we bound the hands of future British Parliament. And between 2007 and 2010, I had the extraordinary honour of being the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, the 74th Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs of the UK, representing the country around the world. And I'd spent my time in diplomacy looking at global geopolitics, obviously. But we were in opposition in 2010. I'd lost the leadership race for the Labour Party in 2010. And so I, I felt a frustration that while I was proud to serve my constituents, I felt that I, I had more to give and more to do. And the International Rescue Committee offered me the chance to try and address some really tough issues in global policy. How do you get aid into Syria? How do you get education into Taliban-controlled areas of Afghanistan? How do you tackle sexual violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo? And I felt that the, the IRC was a bit of a sleeping giant and it had a chance to, to become a, a great organization. And I suppose one other point that's relevant and that I've learned, I think, as I get older is more important. Both of my parents were refugees. Uh, my dad was a refugee from Belgium to the UK in 1940. Hmm. My mum spent the war in Poland, came as a 12-year-old in 1946 on her own. She was put on a boat by her mother. Uh, her father had been killed in a concentration camp. And they were both Jewish, my, my mum and dad. 
And my mum came to the UK in 1946. And if, if Britain had not admitted refugees in the 1940s and 50s, then, then I sure as night follows day, I wouldn't be here today. And so in some way, working for an organization that was committed to helping people whose lives are shattered by conflict and disaster was a way of closing a circle, if you like, and putting back something that related to my own history, albeit in very different circumstances in the, in the 21st century. Mm. Well, so you're obviously well-placed to speak about many of the things that interest me here. I, I want to talk about the pandemic and our inept response to it, the especially inept response of the United States, and uh, what I certainly perceive to be America's loss of stature in the world. And we can talk about the reasons for that. And you, you seem to be in a great position to triangulate on our circumstance and view us both from inside and outside the U.S. I want to talk about that, but let's speak about the IRC for a bit here, because I want people to understand what it does. And I want to talk a little bit about the politics and ethics around just philanthropy and the way we think about refugees and humanitarian aid generally. First, how would you differentiate if, in fact, there is daylight between what the IRC does and some other groups? I know that the UN has its own refugee efforts, which I've supported in the past. There's obviously Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, that does medical work in similar conditions. The Red Cross, Save the Children. People know about many of these organizations. Where does IRC fit in that? pantheon of people doing good in the world, you know, at uh, considerable risk and expense, and frankly, without the kind of uh, plaudits, you know, in, in certainly in mainstream conversation that you would expect all these groups to have. Yes, it's interesting that it's a, it's a confusing picture. And we're a non-governmental organization. So the first point is we're different from the UN, because we are independent. We, mm -hmm. we are adhering to the humanitarian principles of independence and neutrality and impartiality, but we're not a government agency. I think there are three or four ways that they make the IRC, the International Rescue Committee, unique, distinctive. One is that we're not a generalized anti-poverty agency. We're focused on people whose lives are shattered by conflict and disaster. We're focused on people who are in war zones, people who are internally displaced in their own countries people who are refugees, and I'll come back and explain a bit about the differences. And we're focused on people who start new lives in countries like the United States or, or, or Germany. We work across the arc of crisis. We work in about 35 to 40 countries, not the 120 countries that the anti-poverty agencies would uh, mm. work in. Uh, we're defined by our origins in that way. And when I arrived, we, were, we defined ourselves as helping refugees and others. I thought that wasn't, I, I wouldn't have wanted to be an other. I thought we had to do a better job of defining who we, who we were and who we served. And we settled on this phrase that we help people whose lives are shattered by conflict or disaster survive, recover, and gain control of their lives. And so, that, so the first point is that we have a focus. We're not trying to do everything. The second thing that I think makes the organization uh, unusual is that it's both an international humanitarian aid agency in 200 field sites uh, around the world, 35 to 40 countries. 13,000 employees now and 17,000 auxiliary workers, many of whom are refugees and displaced people themselves. But we're also 
a refugee resettlement agency in 25 US cities. We're the largest refugee resettlement agency in the US. The US has historically been a leader in helping the most vulnerable refugees restart their lives in, in a new country. Interestingly, Ronald Reagan was the president who admitted the most refugees in the early 1980s, mm. many from South Vietnam, 200, 210,000 a year. And under the Trump administration, the bipartisan support for refugee entry into the US has been slashed by about three quarters. But we are unusual, we're distinctive as an organization, because we're both an international humanitarian aid agency, we're a global agency in that sense, but we're also US-focused through our 25 cities. The third thing that I think makes us different is the focus on research and evidence. We talk a lot about impact. We spend a lot of time trying to document best practice. We say all of our programs must be evidence-based or evidence-generating. And we're now the largest research agency in the humanitarian sector. If you want to study crisis, uh, the plurality of impact evaluations are done, in, done by the International Rescue Committee and its partners. I suppose that the fourth element of this is, and that people often ask about, is how, how does the organization recruit and work? And about 95% of our staff are hired locally in the places that we work. So inside Syria, we've got 800 staff across the country in, in two main areas, Northeast and Northwest. And, and that pattern of local recruitment adds to our credibility, it adds to our local expertise, frankly, adds to our security. And so maybe just to put some flesh on, on, on the bones of this, just to give you a sense, at the moment, we know that there are wars and conflicts taking place in Syria, in Afghanistan, in Somalia, Democratic Republic of Congo. The most likely consequence of a civil war is another civil war. That's why I talk about the crisis of diplomacy. Internal displacement, that's people who've been, have had to flee their own homes, but stay within their own country. And in Syria, to take that as an example, there are about seven to eight million internally displaced. Globally, there are 45 million internally displaced. Then a refugee is someone who is forced from their home, not for economic reasons, but for political or conflict reasons, and lands in the next door or other country. And at the moment, there are about 29 and a half, 30 million refugees. If you're a refugee who's crossed a border into a neighboring state or another state, and you are claiming refugee status but haven't yet received it, you're an asylum seeker. So there are about three and a half, four million of those. If you tally those numbers up, it's 80 million people. So for the first time since records began in the 1940s with the foundation of the UN, more than 1% of the world's population are now forced from their homes by conflict and violence. Separate from economic migration, these are people mm. who are forcibly displaced. And so that's the kind of picture of who we are and where we work. The final part of the, the jigsaw is we're one of the implementing agencies. We're funded in the main, three quarters of our funding comes from governments. Our budget is about $850 million this year. Three quarters of our funding comes from government, 25% from uh, the private individuals, foundations and corporations. And that's changed over the last five or six years that I've been at the IRC. In that period, our budget has more or less doubled. And the amount of private funding has also doubled in percentage of the total. But we're still partnering with US government, EU governments, et cetera, predominantly Western governments, although some governments in the Middle East. But we're also increasingly reliant on our private supporters. And we fit into the framework of humanitarian aid by working with UN agencies, working with host governments where they allow that, but always saying that it's the needs of the clients 
who drive us. Mm. Let's talk about the the ethics and the the politics around this because frankly we we don't speak or think about refugees very much unless there's some real obvious crisis or a crisis that for whatever reason gets our attention maybe there's always a crisis and we just avert our eyes at a certain point but the time when this was really being talked about a lot as a phenomenon was during the height of the Syrian civil war and the refugee crisis so-called refugee crisis in Europe in particular and Trump's messaging around this issue uh, you know captured a lot of attention in our local US politics there's so much here that's confusing and becomes fodder for cynicism in the end that I I think it would be good to just try to however patiently try to unpick some of these variables here so for instance so from my point of view it, it just seems to me that we have a responsibility in the developed world to recognize that it's through no genius of our own that we weren't born in Syria in the middle of a civil war. That no one can take yeah. responsibility yeah. for the good luck for not having been born in Syria 10 years ago, say. Yeah. And therefore, it is surely a matter of luck that, you know, you and I and or anyone listening to this hasn't found himself or herself and their children to be in dire need of rescue from some hellscape of a failed state. So once you admit that, and we can we can leave aside, you know, whether or not, you know, a person's agency should factor into this moral calculus, but there really is just no agency in play here. It's just a sheer disparity in luck. And, you know, those of us who find ourselves to be among the luckiest people who have ever lived, living in, you know, reasonably stable societies with a level of abundance that would be, you know, unimaginable in at least a quarter of the world, we have a responsibility to help people who are objectively among the least lucky people on earth at the moment. These are people living in poor, disease-ridden, and now conflict-riven spots on the earth where life has become completely unlivable. And yet, what happened, certainly in the case of the Syrian diaspora, is political controversies around just what Angela Merkel did, you know, just kind of opening the doors in a fairly sudden and uh, unmitigated way to a flood of people, some of whom were clearly refugees, but some, you know, upon even minimal analysis, revealed themselves to be economic migrants. And so that was the first failure of distinction that made many people, you know, very alarmed and closed the door to their what would otherwise have been a humanitarian response in many of them. And it amplified a right-wing populism, which, you know, obviously, if you go far enough to the right, you have people who just don't care about refugees at all. But there were certainly people in the middle who want to help, but recognize that you can't just have an open borders policy, right? There has to be some criteria by which you admit people into your society, because you know, if you have a great social safety net, it simply cannot absorb all the needy people on earth you know, in any given state. So there has to be some filter. And a failure to distinguish between refugees and economic migrants 
seemed pretty important and seems like it will always be important, at least to know who you're admitting. But in response to that right-wing response, you know, both the extreme version and the, and the reasonable version, one then encountered a left-wing response, which seemed to grade fairly directly into a kind of open borders ethical argument, which is, you know, you, you have no right to maintain anything about your society in the face of this need. It's rarely put that starkly, but yeah. But you find yourself yeah. in arguing for anything like a sane policy, you find yourself on a slippery slope where there is no handhold and we just have to allow, you know, all of humanity to equilibrate by osmosis such that in the limit there'd be no reason to come to New York or LA or San Francisco or London because the quality of life there would be reduced to whatever the common denominator would be for the entire planet. And no one's no, no taxpayer in any of those cities is going to sign on to that. So, mm-hmm. so let's let's just start so with. Look, I think there's react a lot, yeah, there's this a lot, initial concern. Yeah, there, there's a, there's a good deal to unpack there, and I think it's worth unpacking. And if I may, I think we should unpack three things because I think they do play into the debate. One is exactly the point you make, which is, are these people real refugees or are they not? There's a second and third, which I'd just like to touch on, which I think does speak to the popular and political reaction around this. Uh, the second is around security. And is it, are, are they properly vetted, which was a big issue in the US? Yep. And the third is, do is there control of our borders, uh, which speaks to your point. And I, if I may, I'll just address all three, because I think it's really important if you want to defend the rights of refugees that you take um, head on the points that are made when they are uh, reasonable points. So the first point is, how can you tell? What's the definition and how can you tell? The 1951 Refugee Convention, uh, transposed into US law in 1980 in the Refugee Act, talks about a well-founded fear of persecution. And what that means is, is it safe for the person to go home? And sometimes that can be told by where they're from. So it's not safe to send a Yazidi back to North, northwestern Iraq for obvious reasons. They've been chased out. It's not safe to send a, a Muslim back to Burma, Myanmar, because they've been ethnically cleansed out of there. It's not safe to send a, a Sunni a young man back to Syria because he's going to be persecuted by the Assad regime. And my point to people is to say, we have now, over 70 years since the passage of the Refugee Convention, a well-founded, organized ways of treating each case and assessing them. And there's a good example in Germany. You mentioned Germany. Angela Merkel said she would assess the claims uh, that turned out to be one and a half, one and three quarter million asylum seekers tried to claim asylum in, in Germany. And every case was addressed. And at the beginning, it was more or less 50-50. Then it became 70-30 who were being admitted. Now it's more like 40% who are admitted, 60% who are not. And so the system can work. It then becomes difficult, just in all transparency. There are then difficulties, and the Germans have faced this, difficulties in then saying, well, if you failed your asylum application, it's then, and you're from Niger or you're from Mali, it may be hard to get them back. But nonetheless, I think the philosophical point, and I run an agency that is the largest refugee resettlement agency in America, we say very clearly, there should be a test. And if you pass, you should be effectively integrated into the society that you've come to. And if you don't, then you can't stay. And what we can point to is parts of the world that do this well. In America, it's not being done well at the moment. If you come and claim asylum in America in February before the COVID pandemic started, it would be three or four years before your case was actually seen in the immigration court. So 
The first thing is it's a reasonable thing for you to say, it, can there be a system that works? And my answer to that is yes, and it can evolve. So for example, 70 years ago, if you were a woman suffering domestic violence in El Salvador and you fled and claimed asylum, it wouldn't have recognized your claim. Today, it can recognize your claim and your case law has built that up. If, if it's okay with you, can I just deal with the other two points? That yeah, that'd be great. Put, because I think they're, they're relevant. Look, there's, there's a security point as well, which is to say, well, how, how do you know these people are safe? Who chooses them? And we went through this in inordinate detail because refugee, the, the, the granting of resettlement or refugee status is important. We support, I support, effective security vetting. The truth is, it's tougher to get into America as a refugee than under any other route, a tourist, a student, or anything else. The vetting right. process takes 18 to 24 months. The UN defines the most vulnerable, but then it's US agencies, US officials who do the vetting. And I mean, the, the, some of the most tragic stories I've had are, are people who worked with the US forces in Iraq or Afghanistan who were promised yeah. that by working for the US military or diplomats, putting themselves at risk of reprisals, we employ some of these people, they would then be given haven. Now, there are 100,000 Iraqis who are still waiting to be able to exercise that right to come and resettle in the US. And they've been literally standing, sitting next to senior American military diplomats, etc. And yet they're still caught up in the system. So I would say on the security front, there is proper, there can be proper vetting. The third element, which was perhaps bigger in the European debate than in the US debate, but it's, it's part of the US debate, is, well, hang on, what kind of controls are there at the border? And in Europe in 2015-16, there wasn't an entry-exit system where everyone arriving was properly docketed, doc properly uh, noted, and properly registered. Now there is. Everyone entering and exiting the European Union, the 27, does get properly registered and, and, and vetted. And I think that it's if the politics of the refugee issue goes wrong, it goes wrong on one of those three grounds. And it's very important that those people who are willing to have a fact-based argument on those three grounds have that fact-based argument, because I think it's a winnable argument. And interestingly enough, actually, if you look at the latest polling in, in America, it does wax and wane, but it's, it's popped up again, the number of Americans, 60 70% now, who are saying they recognize that if you're a victim of war in, for example, Syria, you should be allowed to take refuge here. It's a, it's a historic American tradition. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So now how do you decide whether it's wise to resettle people in a country like America versus in a country bordering a conflict? It's, you know, you take well, uh, that's Turkey or that's Lebanon. A good yeah, it's not our choice. As, as we're, we're a refugee resettlement agency. In the end, it's the US government who decides. Mm. But here's, here's something that I think is really important where people like me and our organization, we need to do a, a bigger and better job. There are a lot of myths associated with the refugee issue. One myth is that most refugees are in rich countries. And in fact, it's completely untrue. 86% right. of the world's refugees are in poor and lower middle income countries. They are in Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey. If they're from South Sudan, they're in Uganda, Kenya, Ethiopia. If they're from Somalia, they're in Kenya. If they're from Burma, Myanmar, they are in Bangladesh. And the number of refugees in America or Europe is actually pretty low by comparison. It's a myth. And, and it's also a myth, by the way, that they're mainly in camps. Most 60% of refugees are in urban areas now, not in camps. And the biggest myth, in a way, the most damaging one is that, well, look, all they need to do is survive for a few months or a few years and they, they go home. The truth is less than 3% of the world's refugees went home last year because the wars keep burning. And you, you just say the, the, the list, Afghanistan, Somalia, 
Democratic Republic of Congo, Syria now in its 10th year. And the, the, the figures are disputed and the figures are not great, but we're talking about multi-generational displacement of a kind that we've never known. Because while the world has a history of wars between states, what we're suffering from at the moment is wars within states, civil wars. I mean, depending on how you classify the India-China standoff at the moment, there are no hot wars between mm -hmm. states at the moment. But there are 15, 20 countries who are spilling out significant numbers of refugees because of implosion at home. And that is a new phenomenon for which the tools of diplomacy that I used to be involved with for the British government are not well suited because the record of helping peace building and peacemaking in countries of civil war is not a good one. Yeah, it really is a, a circumstance where, we, where we've drawn lessons that uh, just can't be integrated into any political or behavioral plan. I mean, so you, you take Syria and Afghanistan by turns. You know, we, we intervened in Afghanistan, and that's the you know, we being the, the United States, and that is now our longest war in history. And I'm reasonably sure that once the last American soldier leaves, we will feel that uh, that was a pointless and ultimately, you know, masochistic exercise in nation building. But we are also chastised for having done nothing about Syria. Although, had we gone into Syria, many would have been outraged that we hadn't learned the lesson of Afghanistan. You really are, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And mere diplomacy, you know, not, not sending troops of any kind seems in, in many cases totally ineffectual. What has diplomacy done for the Palestinian-Israeli conflict that has simmered now for at least 50 years? And many of these things, as you know, just rage out of sight and out of mind. So you take something like Yemen. I know in the abstract that Yemen is a terrible place to be right mm -hmm. now. I was there last year, and we've got 800 people working there. It's the world's large, 24 million people in humanitarian need. And so you're right to, to raise it as a, as a terrible failure of diplomacy, as well as of military strategy, misbegotten military strategy. So what could we do? And so given our experience in Afghanistan and elsewhere, given our experience of avoiding conflict in Syria, and we had Obama's you know, red line, which Assad quickly crossed, revealing us to be some kind of paper tiger or at least an exhausted superpower. What to do? I mean, if you were in control right now, if you mm -hmm. could just pull the levers of diplomacy or military intervention or you know, strong arming our, our allies uh, and adversaries, you take um, the Saudis' involvement mm -hmm. in Yemen, mm -hmm. what do you think the U.S. should do or the U.S. should attempt to get mm -hmm. its allies to collaborate on? Mm-hmm. Well, look, it's, a, it's an important and a good question. And the first thing to, to recognize is that there are different cases. From Afghanistan, America faced a threat to its own homeland. Syria doesn't represent that. And Yemen represents a, the, the meltdown of Yemen represents a threat to an American ally, although uh, there is now a debate in America about the extent to which Saudi Arabia should be seen as an ally. So mm. I, I want to say that I recognize the differences. But I want to also try and say that there are some common elements. And I don't want to sound glib because these are very, very difficult issues. But I think there are some common elements of learning that we can say. The first is that without a clear view of the political settlement in a country, the political compromises between different religious or ethnic or 
geographic groups without a, a vision of the political settlement, no military strategy, no development strategy, no di diplomatic strategy will work. That's a common lesson from all of the conflicts that you have mentioned, and you mm -hmm. can add Iraq to that. That right. essentially civil war is the failure of politics by other means. It's not the continuation of politics, as Clausewitz said. It's the failure of politics, and it's the failure to build political institutions that can forge compromise and share spoils. So that's, uh, I think, the first warning. The second point is that unless you are willing to put assets in play, and they don't have to be military assets, they could be economic assets, unless you're willing to exercise leverage, then diplomacy on its own is not going to work. The, uh, I think Frederick the Great said that diplomacy without arms is like music without instruments. And this applies not just to military, but to economic and other political pressure. If you're not willing, if you don't want to put pressure on Saudi Arabia in respect of Yemen, then they're not going to take any notice of you. And so I think there's a question of priority and interest, frankly. President Trump has uh, inaugurated what Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations calls the withdrawal doctrine, mm. which is essentially that you get out of everything. And you don't accept the argument that the world is interdependent, and you assert that America can prosper through uh, its own means, and it doesn't need to get its hand in the mangle. So the second, I think, common element is that unless you're willing to put skin in the game of different kinds, then it won't work. The third element of this from the conflicts that you mentioned is that these civil wars and one could add civil conflicts, one can add others, is that unless you think about the region as well as about the country concerned, you're not going to be able to forge a conclusion. I came to this studying the Afghan issue very closely. I went to Afghanistan for the first time in 2007. As it happened, I was there for the funeral of the, of the last king of Afghanistan, Zahir Shah, July 2007. Um, Afghans from all across the country and frankly all across the world gathered, but so did the region. And it came home to me so strongly that there could be no Afghan settlement without a regional settlement. And frankly, that applies in other parts of the world as well. So the diplomacy is not just bilateral nation to nation. It's also got to include the rest of the region. Now, if you just take those first three principles and start applying them, actually, American power works. I mean, if you listen, if you think about Yemen, the world's largest humanitarian crisis, Bruce Rydell, Brookings Institution, formerly an American government, outstanding scholar of the Yemen catastrophe. He, he says, look, if America put down its foot and said to Saudi Arabia, you must stop this war tomorrow because it's a misbegotten military strategy that is actually strengthening Iran, not weakening it. It's creating space for Al-Qaeda rather than reducing it. And America was willing to put its assets on the line to, to ensure that happened. Bruce Radell will tell you it would happen tomorrow. Hmm. And I don't want to oversimplify this because stopping the fighting is not just a matter of what the Saudis do in Yemen. It's also a matter of what the Houthis do, and the Houthis are backed by the Iranians. But the strategy of the Saudi-led coalition, which I'm sorry to say the US and the UK are signed up to, is a misbegotten military strategy. And there's a danger that America underestimates its power and, and mislearns the lessons of uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, which I think are painful, and incredibly painful. Not, I wouldn't say pointless. You said... Uh, that we'll look back on Afghanistan as pointless. You, you, if you're an Afghan, you wouldn't say it was pointless. But I, I know what you're saying. The price has been very, very high indeed. But I think... Well, I guess I would, I would add to the picture of pointlessness the prospect that 
in the end, whatever we recognize the end to be, we may just see a resurgence of the Taliban and a return to something like the status quo circa 2000. You may, and uh, many Afghans would fear that, especially female Afghans. But the uh, American national interest would say the big question is, is not ended by, by the question of the Taliban. The, the, the big question for America's strategic interest is whether Afghanistan is a source of threat to the wider world by providing a haven for al-Qaeda or, or, or others. But I, I mean, I take the point, your, your point about the progress, but it didn't start as a nation-building, quote-unquote, nation-building mm. process. But my, my point in answer to your question is that we need to create a new kind of diplomacy. What, what, I mean, I was the Secretary of State in the UK. Diplomacy was in, in a transitional period because the, the, this question of the civil wars that were threats to regional peace and security was emerging because of the failings in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. And what we face now is a true crisis of diplomacy. It's not just that wars are continuing. We are living through what I call an age of impunity. And I get, I'm sorry, I apologize. I don't know if I need to apologize, but I get passionate about this because literally International Rescue Community staff running an ambulance in northwest Afghanistan get bombed mm. by their own government and by the Russians. That is the age of impunity. The fact that 70% of people who die in war today are civilians in urban areas is the age of impunity. The fact that aid workers are killed in higher numbers is the age of impunity. The fact that military commanders in Yemen, where a coachload of children were bombed by the Saudi-led uh, coalition, in Syria, never mind what non-state organization, the fact that military commanders think they can get away with anything means they do everything. They do everything beyond the limits that we thought we'd established after the Second World War. Chemical weapons, they get used. Bombing of civilians, that gets used. Cluster munitions, that gets used. That is the age of impunity. And my point is that the retreat of countries like the US for all of the failings, for all of the mistakes, for all of the dangers of, a, of thinking in a, an American-centric or Eurocentric way, when countries that formally are committed to human rights and to the accountability of power, when they retreat from the global stage, and remember my own country's in retreat as well, exemplified by Brexit, mm. when, when those countries retreat, for all their failings, the bar for the legitimate exercise of power goes down and the tendency for power to be abused goes up. And that's what we're seeing in the war zones, the conflict zones uh, around the world, both in ungoverned space and in governed space. Ungoverned where non-state actors are in control, governed where state actors who are formally meant to be committed to international treaties are, are concerned. Mm. So I think that your question about what's the right lesson of the traumas of the last 20 years of foreign policy is incredibly important in a world where gr there are growing numbers of these unstable states, producing growing numbers of refugees who are in miserable conditions in too many circumstances themselves, and for whom the international aid system is at the moment a sticking plaster. Okay, so let, let's linger on this skepticism about the wisdom or pragmatism of worrying about the rest of the world in the first place. So you, you have this retreat to nationalism, populism, and a kind of radical selfishness that is 
on one level understandable because again we we rarely see the evidence of great success for all of our misadventures out in the world and you know i mean we we have historical successes we look back at the resolution of world war 2 and we see that what we did in germany and japan in the aftermath well they, you know, these are now allies and you know the, we're not dealing with mortal enemies anymore these are these are some of our closest allies so clearly it's possible to rectify even the worst schism diplomatically in the end you know even in the aftermath of a the worst possible war but there's not much evidence of that at least in popular consciousness of late and just take the the american case and i'm sure it's somewhat similar under the the shadow of brexit in the uk but in america you know you, you look around at our own failing infrastructure you look at the crisis of homelessness in in major cities and it's easy to draw the lesson we can't even put our own house in order and we are hemorrhaging jobs and economic prospects again we'll, we'll turn the conversation toward the pandemic and all of its knock-on effects soon but i could see that somebody in a trumpian frame of mind could say well all of those crises as as tragic as they are are far away and you know i know i'm being told a story that the world is interconnected but what i find most galling is that the potholes in my own roads and the homeless people on my own doorstep that those problems can't even be solved apparently by the exercise of government and and by you know my paying my taxes year after year there's a, just a general message of hopelessness and and ineffectuality kind of the zero sum marshaling of resources where it's just there's just not enough money or attention to go around so why pay attention to any of this why isn't the trumpian retreat to the citadel both politically I mean, we understand it's politically pragmatic to anyone who who's thinking along these lines but why isn't it actually a plausible path toward at least american and first world prosperity well let's not call it a trumpian point let's call it a good point mm-hmm. uh, it's a good point to say if america can't america should be able to fit it fix its potholes and it should be able to fix its education system and it should be able to fix its immigration system now those are good perfectly uh, sensible points and i think the way to address them is as follows or, or at least discuss them is as follows beyond saying that they're that those are rightful frustrations to put it mildly the first is that tending to the international front does not preclude tending to the home front the diplomacy doesn't take away from the home front and frankly the sums of money involved are also limited the sums of money in respect of overseas aid are, are very small 0.17% of us national income goes on overseas aid actually i i just want to just flag a a fascinating poll result i don't know if this is done year after year but i, I know it's been done where you where you ask people whether we give too much money to foreign aid or not and and most people i forget the actual numbers here you might know them but most people in the us think we give too much to foreign aid but when asked how much we should give they put the number at something like 4% which is you know 10x what we actually give yes yeah. i mean and, and also they think the current level is 25% or yeah some right very, yeah. very high yeah. um so look that the demand to fix the home front is is a rightful one but point 1 that doesn't preclude you from working internationally secondly 
you use the phrase retreat to the citadel, which is a great phrase. The, the Israeli author Yuval Harari talks about a dystopian future of a quote unquote network of fortresses. And it's dystopian because it doesn't work. Hmm. The blessings of the global economy, global innovation, mean that a future of a network of fortresses is going to be, is, is not going to deliver anything that people have come to expect or, or, or hope for. That's the reality of the, the global economy and uh, society. And that's why the, the pandemic does provide an absolutely critical point of rupture. I mean, if the lesson of the pandemic is that a connected world is dangerous, then we're going to have deglobalization, retreat from connection, and I'm afraid not actually tackle the problem. If the diagnosis of the pandemic is that globalization has been mismanaged, that actually we need a stronger World Health Organization, not a weaker one, that if you're worried about Chinese influence in the World Health Organization, the worst possible thing to do is to pull out hmm. from the American point of view. So the second part of uh, the answer, I think, is to make the case that the world is more interdependent than when John Kennedy proclaimed a declaration of interdependence on Independence Day 1962. He went to Philadelphia and he said, my fellow Americans, we're living in an interdependent world and we need a declaration of interdependence. And it's even more the case today, whether you think about the supply chains that allow the economy to proceed, and never mind the innovations, for example, on the vaccine that need to be globally spread. There probably is a third part to this, though, which is important, which is to really recognize that the renewal of fragile and failing states around the world is primarily the responsibility of people who live there. And it's important not to have hubris about the role of international engagement. But it's equally, or even in some ways more dangerous, not to recognize that the retreat from, in, from global engagement doesn't mean that other people aren't there. I mean, if America retreats, doesn't, that doesn't mean the Russians are going to retreat or the Chinese are going to retreat. In fact, the evidence of the last six months is that China thinks that American retreat creates circumstances for it to expand its footprint. Mm. And so I think there is a global security aspect that doesn't have the short-term res resolution of fixing a, pox a pothole, but does speak to the kind of strategic, patient, global engagement that is essential to the prosperity and security of a country like this. And that's a political argument that has run for 200 years in this country. I'm very conscious of that, and I'm, I wouldn't teach American politicians how to win it, not least because we lost it in my own country. But I think that it is striking to me that the European Union is defying the predictions that it was going to, that it was going to crumble under the weight of COVID. And for medium-sized countries, the case for global engagement is overwhelmingly strong. I think the, the case that has to be made here is obviously different because this is a superpower and it's one of only two real superpowers in the world. And it's a harder argument. But I think that if you, if you want to think about American prosperity and security, it's intimately linked, not just to its neighbors to the south and to the north, because by virtue of geography, you're a long way from some of the world's trouble spots. But if we've learned anything in the last six months, it's that the world is actually smaller, not more disconnected than people say. Mm. Yeah, well, you mentioned Harari and, and a point he makes a lot, which, you know, it's very simple. It's almost an aphorism, but it, it does seem like a very good heuristic for thinking about this. He says that you know, there are global problems which only admit of global solutions. There's no single nation that can solve the problem of climate change or a truly adequate pandemic response. 
And there are many things in the end that will be added to that list of threats, which some of which are, you know, existential threats. I mean, there are developments in technology which could spell the end of us for which we're in a, currently in an arms race condition. I mean, you know, whether it's AI or genetic engineering, I mean, nanotechnology, any, any one of these things could get away from us, even under the best conditions of success. And if we merely have an arms race and are not collaborating globally around some understanding of the shared risks, the very future of the species seems to be in question. Look, I think that's a great point, and it, and it obviously has a climate dimension. But here's an interesting thing. I was in Beijing last November, and quite a senior person said to me, look, I'm really worried about cyber warfare directed at nuclear power plants. Yeah. And do you think that this is something that China and the West could collaborate on? And the fact that they're thinking about it is a good thing. The fact that they're worried about whether or not the West would talk to them and collaborate on it is a bad thing, because it speaks to a kind of myopia that has gripped our countries that is dangerous. So now, where do you come down on collaborating with governments whose human rights records are objectively worse than ours, perhaps not worse than ours have ever been in our history, but worse than ours? are now. And I mean, we've mentioned the Saudis, we mentioned China. It's often seen as a moral failing not to issue ultimatums, you know, where one can. But whatever the other topics of conversation, if you're talking to the Saudis and you're not admonishing them about their, you know, treatment of women or apostates or, uh, you know, any other minority who fares terribly under uh, that theocracy, if you're talking to China and you're not belaboring the point about uh, you know their concentration camps now for the Uyghurs, and yet those are the the very points which might cause conversation on any other topic to totally break down. How would you recommend governments and you know, individual politicians navigate those? Well, well, to answer your question directly, should we be collaborating? which was the word you used, yep. with, with governments that are repressing human rights, the answer is we should certainly not be collaborating in the repression of human rights. Right. If collabor collaboration means egging on, supporting... You know, I mean, I mean on other fronts, yeah. So, but, but, but I think it's important to start with that, that, that to collaborate in something is to help it happen. Secondly, I think that it's really important that if we don't if we're not willing to defend our own values and speak to our own values, which is the most basic defense of them, then what use are they? And so if the first point is that there should, you shouldn't be collaborating in the repression of human rights, the second point is, should you be speaking up about it? My answer to that would be yes. I mean, I spent three years as foreign minister. And I think that you, you, when you go to China, they don't respect you if you don't raise difficult issues, that they will not respect you. They know what's on your mind, hmm. and maybe more ways than one, but the... the, the, the They've the, scanned the, your uh, phone, yeah. <laughs> I don't, uh, but the... Um, uh, so, so if you don't have the self-respect to speak up for what you think, that, I, I think, betokens weakness, and you can guarantee you'll get nowhere. Thirdly, you use the word ultimatums, and the truth about ultimatums is twofold. One, you should never use an ultimatum unless you're willing to follow through. And secondly, you shouldn't overuse ultimatums, because if you throw around too many ultimatums, you'll be shown to be not just a broken record, but, but actually a hollow 
shell. So you have to choose your ground. The fourth thing that I think is incredibly important is that in dealing with powerful autocrats, never mind, leave aside the, the less powerful ones because that makes it too easy. But if you're dealing with powerful autocrats, powerful autocratic regimes, then taking them on on your own is hopeless. Hmm. I and mean, I'm one of the people who, when the Obama administration said it wanted to have a pivot to Asia, I, I actually think that was a good thing, not a bad thing. It recognized the changing political and economic geography of the world. What I think would have been much more powerful would be if the United States had pivoted to Asia with the European Union rather than separate from it, because there is strength in numbers. And we see that in the United Nations Security Council when there's fragmentation of the West, broadly defined as a political concept, not just a geographic one, then there's open sway. And so the the, the importance of the alliances is not a theoretical nice-to-have. It's a very practical thing, because the truth is that there, even the United States can't bring the world to heel on its own. But a United States that's actually in alliance with the European Union, 500 million people, if it's an alliance with India, which is now an interesting opening, the Chinese have come into conflict with India for the first time in 60 years, in the last two weeks. That's a risky move in, in not just bilateral terms, but in reshaping Indian thinking about wh- who it can trust. Mm. Because, of course, India has been non-aligned throughout, and that, that's not going to change anytime soon. But the, there's non-alignment, but there's also then the distance between the different elements. And you can see that in a, on a host of issues, there are, there are alliances to be built. And the danger of the withdrawal doctrine that I mentioned earlier is that the weight of alliances is weakened. And therefore, the sense that America is being taken advantage of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because sure as, sure as anything, if America is isolated from its allies, it's going to be weaker in the international domain, especially a multipolar, fragmented global power system that exists today. Hmm. Yeah, so let's pivot to the topic of the pandemic. And also, I guess, uh, alongside that, this unraveling of American competence and commitment to its own values. I think it was a Financial Times piece I read recently that talked about the Trump administration ushering in a post-value and post-competence America, which is to say we can't credibly champion our commitment to human rights and the values of democracy and human rights because we have a president who has been glad-handing the world's dictators and you know, openly admiring them and reviling our closest allies. And we have a an example. I mean, just every day we see the graph lines of cases and fatalities drawing invidious comparisons between the American response to the pandemic and most of the rest of the world's response. I mean, certainly the, the developed world's response. Maybe, you know, Sweden is running alongside us now. But what we have is a very clear outcome measured in needless death, frankly, and attendant economic sacrifice of our incompetence and the breakdown of American institutions and trust in institutions. So I guess I'll hand you this in two parts. What's your perception of the the loss of American stature and influence in the world, and in particular, 
how has our response to COVID exacerbated that problem? Mm-hmm. Look, I think it's, it's quite a grievous situation. I mean, it, it's grievous to live in a country where I think it's more than incompetence. Look, I saw today in the newspaper that the latest figures are that there are going to be 210,000 deaths by November. But if 95% of Americans wore masks when they went out, it will be 160,000. That's 50,000 people dying extra for want of wearing a, a, a mask. And it's not incompetence that is leading them not to wear masks. It's, it's a deeper polarization that you, you've spoken mm. about elsewhere. And the world notices. The world really does notice. Just to, I will get to your two points, but I, I, I want to pick up something very particular because you talked about human rights in, in the beginning of your question. Look, uh, the United States can't tell China not to separate parents from their children in the Uyghur, part, in the Uyghur community of Western China if it's separating parents from their children at the US southern border. Mm. It's just a basic point. So if you don't live your values, you can't preach your values. And that seems to me absolutely uh, fundamental, because to the extent that America is a nation of values, not just a nation of laws, or as well as a nation of laws, and that there's an idea that binds, that creates America's soft power, and that idea links some of the things that we've talked about in this podcast, right back to immigration and refugees, and the way they're treated, then there's undoubtedly loss. And so I then address your two questions directly. How much reassessment has there been, you called it loss of stature, over the last three years? I think the first thing to say to that is that the reassessment is is longer term. Remember in in President Clinton's last State of the Union address, he talked about the post-Cold War world having been addressed and that America had to focus on its home problems. President Bush, or candidate Bush, said in 2001, we won't be the world's policemen. President Obama said nation building has to start at home, has to focus on the home front. So the world has learned to recognize that America wants to have less to do with them. And it's been forced back in various ways. But obviously, the last three years have been different. I mean, they've been more than an accelerant to previous trends. They've been a disjuncture. And the withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, which left Asian allies on their own, is very significant but it stretches right through the the range of other points. And so the loss of position, I would say, rather than stature, has been real. That doesn't mean people have given up on America, but I do think they have to hedge against a different kind of America. Mm. And so you can see that in the debate about European, quote-unquote, sovereignty today. You can see that in the way Europeans discuss their relations with China and whether or not the trade war that America has declared on China and now, now partly resolved could be turned on them. You can see that in the way Russia has become a go-to power in the Middle East. So you can see in different parts of the world that the position has been eroded and the hedging is real. And anyone looking at America over the next 10 or 20 years would not just conclude that it's going to be focused on its domestic problems, but that it's it, it's a brave person who says that they can be 100% confident of the way in which it will support its alliances around the world. So alliances, uh, allies and enemies or rivals see that. Mm. Then you come to COVID. And this is very significant, I think. I wrote a piece at the beginning of the crisis for the New Statesman magazine talking about the four contests that would define the post-COVID world. And briefly, they were about 
uh, globalization, which we've talked about. They were about privacy which, and trust. They were about equality, but they were also about democracy. And remember, coming through and out of this crisis, there's not just a argument about which countries did better. There's also an argument about which systems did better. And in a way, that debate is happening slightly independent of the facts, because the facts are that there are some autocracies that have done, quote unquote, well, and there are some autocracies that have done badly. There are some democracies that have done well, Germany and South Korea come to mind, and there are some democracies that have done badly. Sadly, the US and the UK fit into that context. So the question of how does COVID affect it is twofold, I think. One, there's real concern around the world for people who are living in America. I mean, I get this. People say, well, we hope you're okay. Mm. And they say, I never thought you'd say that. But they are looking at Dr. Fauci, talking about 100,000 deaths a day, uh, 100,000 cases a day, I'm Mm. sorry. And they are concerned. They can see a country that is a big part of global politics, but also a big part of the global economy. And they're, they're bearish about it. They're bearish about how the disease is going to be contained. And they're bearish, therefore, about the economic consequences. And they're frankly worried about the resilience of the political system and its ability to take account of that. And it is striking to see that Germany is a federal system, but it's a federal system in which the central government has been willing to lead in this crisis. And obviously, in this country, the federal government has passed responsibility to, to states who've got a, a very mixed approach, to put it mildly. So the one aspect of it is to do with America, but there's a second aspect the, the world is thinking about, which is, well, what does it mean for us? It's one thing to feel concern or even pity for America, but the second thing is, well, what does it mean for us? And what does it mean for us if we're an ally? And what does it mean for us if we're a rival? Mm. And, I, and I think that the, 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 the shorthand is that for, if you're an ally, you're thinking, well, we're going to have to, we can't bank on the Americans being strong partners because they're going to have other things on their mind. And if you're a rival, you're thinking, well, this is a good time to assert ourselves. And assertion can be the double Russian-Chinese veto of a humanitarian resolution in the UN Security Council yesterday that would have allowed cross-border aid into Syria. It means the Hong Kong situation and the imposition of a new national security law 30 years before the end of the rules that were established by the basic treaty between the UK and China. Mm. So the rest of the world is thinking not just how does COVID affect America, it thinks how does COVID, how does America's reaction to COVID affect the rest of us? And it's not a pretty picture. Yeah, it's the way in which everything has become politicized, the level of hyper-partisanship in the U.S. now. I mean, this is obviously not just a U.S. problem, but it's so extreme here. And the attendant breakdown in, in trust for institutions, I mean, you can see it in it's almost a hologram. You can see all of it in, the, in its tiniest part. I mean, just take the wearing of masks, right? So whether to wear a mask or not has been politicized. And, you know, it's no accident. Trump has essentially done that consciously. But it's also been contaminated by the political capture of institutions or just the lack of honesty at the level of institutions. So there was one point where who the World Health Organization recommended against wearing masks, right? And some local public health people did likewise at a time when it was, it was just obvious that that was completely illogical advice. If it's a catastrophe that doctors and nurses don't have enough PPE, including masks, 
it can't be because masks don't work, right? So the real concern was to li limit a run on masks so that doctors and nurses could have them, and that simply could have been talked about. But to be told that wearing masks is not only not helpful, it could be harmful, just completely shatters the, the credibility of, of the organizations giving this, uh, you know, what purports to be necessary public health advice. And that process becomes explicitly corrupted by politics when you have epidemiologists condemning, in this case, right-wing protests against the lockdown, but supporting protests in favor of racial equality in the aftermath of the, the George Floyd killing. And it's obvious that there's no difference at the level of the protest. It's just we're now seeing the politics of epidemiologists expressed, and again, expressed by the thousands. They're signing open letters to this effect. And so the net result is many, many millions of people in the U.S. draw the lesson that even scientists will lie, you know, lie for no good reason or lie for transparently political reasons in the middle of a pandemic, and you can't trust anyone. And therefore, you know, not wearing a mask is just as reasonable a thing to do as, as to wear one. And the net result is we have executed a fairly costly, but in the end, ineffectual lockdown. I mean, we've, we've done just enough to harm our economy, but not enough to really pull the brakes on the, on the level of contagion in a consequential way. So we, we sort of have the worst of both worlds. And yet the punchline drawn here, or the, the lesson drawn here is not that there was a clear path forward toward competence and you know, doing the right thing. It's just we can't even agree uh, about what, what went wrong here because no one trusts experts anymore, or at least enough don't, that it makes it um, an impossible conversation to have. Again, someone like Fauci. It's like, you know, Fauci has suffered the same diminishment in his capacity to persuade by, you know, mere proximity to Trump that many people suffer. It's like you stand long enough in this man's orbit, you lose whatever reputation for probity and honesty you ever had. And now he's, he seems to have been sidelined and we're not getting a lot of public health information regularly anyway. And so people are just sort of muddling through on their own and there's no end in sight. Well, it does feel quite sink or swim for yeah. people. I, I feel that myself. And I think there is a sense of sink or swim. Now, you use the word trust five, six times in, 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 that, in your question. And I think that's important. Let me bring this back to the work that, that we do. We know that the most valuable asset in a public health emergency is not a hospital. The most valuable asset in a public health emergency is trust. If people don't trust the information, they're not going to use the hospital. We know this from our work in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We were, we've just finished supporting 95 hospitals with infection prevention and control. If or at the beginning of the outbreak, people did not trust the, their own government and, their, and, and by connection, they didn't trust the international institution. So trust is the most precious commodity. And you use the phrase corrupted by politics, which of course is the antithesis of what democratic politics should be about, because democratic politics should be about the airing of opinions on the basis of agreed facts. And I think that there's some important thinking for, for us in the Anglo-Saxon world. Maybe 15, 20 years ago, you'd have had people talking in a rather 
talking down at what what what, the, what they saw as the German quote unquote consensus based political system, and they talked it down because they felt it was or they argued it lacked dynamism. Now, what that consensus based system has shown in the midst of the greatest crisis for well, the greatest health crisis for a hundred years, and in some ways a potentially very big the, the greatest political crisis of the post war period, is that you generate trust through systems, through institutions, not just through, and, and through processes, not just through people. And you'll have a be- obviously a much better perspective on, on the US situation than I will, but here's my reflection on it. I first came to America in 1977. I was 12 years old and I spent a year as a junior high school student outside Boston. And it was the most extraordinary, wonderful year of my life, really. The 1970s was a dark decade in the UK. It was pretty dark in the late 70s here. But to me, as a, as a British 12-year-old, it was just, it was, it was eye-opening and it was, the, it was the land of opportunity. 10, 11 years later, I was a graduate student uh, at MIT and again in the Boston area. Now, on both those visits, the sense of this being a continent, not just a country, was strong, but there was a common language, there, was a, there were a common set of institutions. Coming back here in 2013, and especially since then, the sense of the corrosion of the common conversation, the corrosion of the common institutions, beyond the military, I would say, the, the military remains a, a very significant source of cohesion, actually social as well as cultural cohesion. But the number of institutions that play that binding role seems to have been reduced significantly. And part of that is changes in the media landscape. Obviously, you've spoken about social media before. Mm. But I think the restoration of the idea of this as a country, not just a continent, is, and obviously it's more difficult. You've got three time zones. I come from a country that has a single time zone, so much as you need to fit the UK into a medium-sized US state. Um, this is a much bigger place. But I think that that feels like a very pregnant discussion in the US context. And e plura basunum has got to mean something again to allow for common action to be taken. Because, of course, in this constitutional system, the, the odds are stacked against central government doing things for historic reasons that one understands. But the modern world requires central government to be able to do things. And it requires institutions that can bind people together and engender trust. Because trust doesn't just come by being right. Trust comes by being honest, I think. And your reference to the need to explain uncertainty, the, the, the responsibility of leadership to explain uncertainty as well as certainty, is, it has been exemplified in some of the countries that have come to terms with COVID well and has been failed in, in other countries. Mm. So um, uh, and now I realize I've taken much of your time here, David. It's been great. But I want to ask you uh, just one forward-looking question here. I mean, the question is just how do we turn the corner here toward something far more hopeful politically, economically, at the level of just an effective response to global problems, you know, the pandemic being foremost in our minds here. I guess it's so that the near-term concern, obviously, in the U.S. is the looming election in November, uh, which could go at least one of two ways. I'm sure there's a third way into the abyss that we <laughs> that no one wants to talk about, but how do you view the prospects of um, Trump being reelected or not? And how differently do you see 
the next few years of uh, life on Earth as a result. Can I hang on to the foot? I mean, this yeah. may mean we have to have two questions, not one. So I may okay. be extending your um, yeah, yeah. demanding more patience from you than I deserve. But in the first half of what you were saying, or the first actually three quarters of what you were saying, there was something about global problems and about how we respond to them. I, I just want to, I want to hang on to that because yeah. I think that's that there's something important. Here's my theory of the case, and I don't want to overclaim for it, but I think it does speak to something important. My theory of the case is that if you want to achieve, if you want to see big change, then history tells you three things have to be aligned. They are government leadership, they are business and NGO innovation, and they are mass mobilization. Those are the three recipes that if you think about the big social, economic, political, cultural, security changes, challenges over the last 200 years, I think those are three common elements. Now, here's the interesting thing about the, the current condition. Those three elements of big social and economic change, government leadership, business and NGO innovation, mass mobilization, they don't have to come in that order. And my perspective at the moment is that governments are in retreat from big, prob big problems. They may not be in retreat from fixing the potholes, although some are, but they are certainly in retreat from the big global problems that we have touched on today. They're in retreat from the big global problems of diplomacy. They're in the big retreat from the big global problems of climate. There's a real danger that mm. one, one consequence or uh, collateral damage of the COVID crisis is that the argument grains ground that you see you know, climate isn't such a problem. Actually, I would, I would just add to that, not that it isn't such a problem, but just that the prospect of our achieving anything like a an effective consensus on what to do about it, or even acknowledging that it's a problem, is next to nil here, because just look how difficult it was to converge on COVID being a problem, even as, you know, the, the hospitals were filling in Italy and elsewhere. I mean, we just, this wave of disease was, was visibly breaking on our shores, and we, much of our bandwidth was taken up by discussions about whether this is all just a political hoax, and we still can't convince you know, half the population to wear masks. So it's the idea that we would convince anyone to make significant economic sacrifice in response to the what is widely perceived as a, a massive hypothetical of climate change, and the worst effects of which are going to be visited not upon ourselves, very likely, but upon our descendants, it just seems just impossible to imagine. And so to follow the thread you just pulled out there, it seems that an effective response to the threat of climate change needs to bypass politics altogether. I mean, what we, well, we need people to want to drive electric cars more than they want to drive gas cars. And, you know, and well, let me hang on to my, let me hang on to my point, because you've expressed well the climate change challenge, but I just want, I don't want to lo lose uh, my own thread. Yeah, go for I think it. it speaks, it speaks yeah. to the point you made. I was saying that government leadership, business innovation, mass mobilization, they don't have to come in that order. And I think that with governments in retreat for all sorts of reasons to do with political dysfunction from big global problems, the change agents, the leadership, if you like, is going to come from business NGO partnerships. It's going to come from mass mobilization. You've seen some of that in the US over the last uh, six weeks. And the, the, the drive is going to come from outside government, but that doesn't mean we can do without government. And I think that's the context in which to see the climate challenge, where you do, I think, have 
any serious business that's thinking about the next 10 to 25 years has to think about low carbon. It just has to, because it can see the way global regulation is going. You may not think that about the US, but if you look at the, the biggest standard setters in the, in the world today are in Europe and China. Mm. They're the biggest regulatory standard setters. They're going low carbon. So there's no choice about it. And the renewal of the, the, the compact around, or, or, the rest, or the creation of a new compact around these big global problems is going to have to come, I think, the spark for this is going to have to come from outside government. Now, where my, so I guess my point is that this is a time when people are searching for agency. They're searching for the ability to make a difference. And I, I think that obviously comes through politics. Your election is incredibly important. It's a big fork in the road for America, but it's a big fork in the road for the world, frankly. America is still an agenda setter in a very big way. But I think that for some of the policy problems we've talked about, we've got to think about the responsibility in civil society and in business as well. Right. Yeah. Well, all of that is encouraging in a way. I mean, the idea that we would have to wait for government to take the lead on all of these problems is fairly dispiriting at the moment. But I, yeah, I, I do share your sense that business and people can just begin doing the right thing, incentivized in whatever way. I mean, as you point out, if you believe that with your, your, your business hat that climate change is real, whatever your politics, you know, you will be moved by your bottom line to accommodate that reality going forward. And if the regulation of other countries is part of that, well, then you'll just take the right steps. So to the question of, of the election, how do you see the prospect? I mean, just imagine Trump is reelected. My first concern there is, I mean, forget about all of the bad things I associate with four more years of Trump. I really worry about the message that sends to the rest of the world. To have elected Trump in the first place is one sort of error. To double down on him for four more years, given what has happened, given the degree to which he has amplified political polarization, to put it mildly, and failed to respond to um, you know, truly serious crises in a way that should inspire any confidence. To ratify all of that with a, an election and say, we want more, what would you picture the perception of America being from our allies? I know this is a leading question, but I mean, just you know what it's like to be a, Look, I think pond. you're right. I think you're, you, you must be right to see that this is a major junction for the future of America and its relations with the rest of the world. Allies, by the way, not just in Europe, but allies in Asia and Japan and elsewhere. So th this is a major moment. I'm obviously a, not an American, so I have to have a degree of humility. It's, it's your country, not mine. And I have to also recognize I'm, I'm leading a, a non-political NGO. As a political analyst, though, I would say that this is a, one of the most consequential elections that you've ever uh, had. And it's a consequential election which takes its place alongside probably 1964. It takes its place alongside 1932 in various ways. It Maybe even uh, this gets beyond my American history probably, but 1860 is probably something other people say. I, I don't know whether you can say that. I mean, this is a but, but certainly in the 20th century, you'd pick out the 64 election and the 32 election as being those times when there is the most, there's an equivalent level of fork in the road. Now, as it relates to America's international engagement, I think here you have to give the Trump administration credit in the following way. 
they actually mean what they say. Mm. So their, their rhetoric and their policies are pretty closely aligned when it comes to what they think about foreign countries and about alliances with them. They don't believe in them. They believe that national sovereignty, we talked about the network of fortresses, they believe that national sovereignty tells you enough about how to exist and prosper in the modern world. And they have prosecuted that case in an extremely diligent and consistent way. And again, as a political analyst, you'd have to say that the gap between rhetoric and reality has been quite small. They said that they did not believe in the alliances and they've tried to weaken the alliances. They said they did not believe in international treaties, so they have pulled out of international treaties. They said they did not believe in having foreign tro uh, American troops stationed abroad, so they've withdrawn the American troops from abroad. Most recently, the announcement in respect of Germany. They say that America is being fleeced in, in international institutions whatever the facts, which one can go through, contrary, they have followed that through. Now, I think that as a political analyst, you've therefore got to say that the consequences for, you asked about allies, for NATO, for relations with the European Union, for America's place in the UN and other UN bodies, because America is under a Trump administration, number two is going to pull out of the World Health Organization, you're going to see a very significant change in the global balance of power because the global balance of power follows global engagement. And so that means that I think in terms of the future of the global order, it will not be a post-American order, to use the, the phrase that Fareed Sakara used in his book 15 or 20 years mm. ago, but it will be a, a post-Western order in that the notion of a unified West that is an alliance of values and interests rather than a transactional relationship uh, will, will come under sustained, such sustained strain that it breaks. And you're going to have a new dispensation in which a weaker group of liberal democratic countries, whether they be in the geographic West or whether they be in Australia and Japan, are going to have to rethink how they chart a course in a much colder international climate. A colder climate politically, obviously. And that's why, by any stretch of the imagination, this is a, an election that matters to the world as well as an election that matters to America. Hmm. Well, David, uh, it's been great to get your expertise and point of view on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you so much for having me. And if any of your listeners want to visit rescue.org, they can learn about what my inc incredible colleagues are doing around the world. And we'd love to have them learn more and engage with us. Yeah, and I will be doing that myself. I plan to support you. I find what you're doing incredibly impressive and uh, just we need more of it. So please keep going. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Take care.